As I mentioned, last week we were uh, cruising through a nice, uh, relax your shoulders, seven verses. Now we are, I didn't do a full count, but we've we got to be over 70. So we have gone ten times uh, larger in our text, as well as some uh, pretty heavy portions. And so I uh, ask that you would turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 6. We'll be going through uh, the rest of Acts chapter 6. Uh, we'll be going through all of chapter 7 and the beginning of chapter 8. So buckle up. Uh, But first, I want to tell you a story of a man named Robert Murray McShane. Robert Murray McShane. He was a pastor uh, back, he was born in 1813, and he died in 1843 in Scotland. And so he was uh, a pastor, he was a preacher, he came to faith uh, only right before he turned 20, and then he uh, went to school, and then uh, became a pastor when he was 23, and uh, one time during his pastoral ministry, he was a guest preacher at another church. And so he went to this other church in Scotland. And at that church, the, the pastor who normally, uh, well, who shepherded that congregation was an old pastor, a godly man, a faithful pastor, was there for many years. And one time, so uh, Robert Murray McShane went and preached at this congregation and then uh, preached that night at that church, and then stayed the night, and he was known to be an early riser, and so he was up early, and he was chatting with this old pastor, and they were talking, but then Robert had to go home, so he goes out, jumps on his horse, and rides away, and this old pastor's wife was downstairs, and she could hear weeping, and she thought, well, what's, what's that all about, and so she goes up to check on her husband in his study, and he's sitting there crying, and she looks at his face, but she sees joy, she sees tears of joy. She says, what's, what's going on? And this man is crying, and he's saying, that was the most Christ-like man I've ever met and will ever meet. Robert Murray McShane's life was characterized by holiness. and He, car- he really uh, brought to life this picture of what it means to follow Jesus, to follow Jesus. And so that's a big question that we're facing this morning, is what does it mean to actually follow Jesus? What does it mean to follow Jesus? It's a simple answer. The answer is following Jesus, but it's a little bit more nuanced than that. What does it mean to follow Jesus? That's the big question. If you're a Christian here this morning, it's a good thing for you to be able to, I'm looking at you, I'm saying, think of an answer. What does it mean to really follow Jesus? If you're a Christian, you're a Christ follower, what does it mean to follow Jesus? And if you're not a Christian, what do you think of when, when you think of that? What does it, you could answer the same question. What does it mean to follow Jesus? You know, maybe you have a really great example in your life. Maybe somebody who invited you here. Right? Maybe that is a great example of what it means to follow Jesus. Maybe you've seen a really bad example of someone who professed to be a Christian but wasn't living out a life that really followed Jesus. Right? Or maybe the media shapes your perspective on Christians or something you've read or someone you've talked to. But it's a big question to ask. No matter who you are, what does it mean to follow Jesus? As I said, I already spoiled the, the answer is in the question. It's following Jesus. It's a big task. And so today we're going to be looking at a man named Stephen and see a life, a ministry, and even a death that demonstrates uh, what it means to follow Jesus. And so that's our big idea. Stephen's life <clears throat> and death serve as a model for what it means to truly follow Jesus by God's help. It's a bit of a loaded one. I normally like to keep the big ideas pretty concise, but I felt like I couldn't take anything out of this. Stephen's life and death serve as a model 
for what it means to truly follow Jesus by God's help. And so I want to be clear that this isn't uh, a be-like message. A lot of preaching books you read, uh, or at least the good ones, tell you don't preach uh, a be-like sermon. You know, be like David, be like Daniel, be like Moses, be like Mary, be like Stephen, right? That's why the sermon is titled, Be Like Stephen, Jesus. Because who do we really want to be like? If we're Christ followers, we want to be like Jesus. Now, that isn't to say we can't learn things, uh, good and bad behaviors from people in the Bible, right? There's no, uh, we can't, it doesn't mean we don't strive to be like certain people, but we can't exclusively look at a passage like this one that we're going to look at about the life, ministry, and death of Stephen and say, I've just got to be like that guy. That's the bar. As Christ followers, we want to be like Jesus. And so we can look at a faithful and Christ-like life like Stephen's and see how God uses it then to propel his mission forward. And so that's our first point. Stephen's life, Stephen's life itself proclaims Christ. If you have a pen, you can make your notes. Stephen's life proclaims Christ. We were introduced to this man named Stephen last week uh, in our cruise through Acts. Uh, we see there be a need. The widows were being neglected. And so seven men are appointed by the church. Uh, the hands are laid on by the apostles. And these men uh, are brought up to fill a need. Now, the apostles laid out some criteria. What kind of people need to uh, be appointed for this? And so the apostles say, Therefore, brothers, this is in uh, chapter 6, verse 3. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, who we will appoint to this duty. Right? So good reputation, full of the Spirit, wise. Right? Here's some criteria. So here's what we know about Stephen so far, is he fits this criteria. So solid dude, all right? Then we see uh, in his introduction, or in Luke's introduction of the list of the seven, in verse 5, says, And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Right? Stephen gets a little extra shout out, saying he's a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. So, so far, Stephen's a, a pretty credible guy, you know? But he wasn't perfect, right? We know through reading the whole Bible, and I'm sure looking in the mirror, we all have sinned. And Stephen was no different. But he was a man that was characterized by his character. So Luke is very clear to say, too, though, that over and over, it's the Holy Spirit at work in Stephen's life. Stephen's life, life is Christ-like by God's help. That was the addition to that last bit of the big idea. By God's help. Stephen can't do this on his own. We can't live this righteous life apart from the Holy Spirit's work in our life. And so I really appreciate that Luke wrote that uh, over and over when he describes Stephen and the, the high mark that he is, that that's the Holy Spirit's work in his life. And so I introduced you to this man, Robert Murray McShane. Maybe you did the mental math when I said his birth date and his uh, death date. He died when he was only 29 years old. Like I said, he was an ordinary pastor. He was a pastor for six years. He accomplished a lot, even though he never wrote a book. Uh, he obviously didn't serve in the ministry for an incredible amount of time. But Robert Murray McShane, uh, he casts a large shadow 
And in a big way, it's because he too was a man that was characterized by personal holiness, by Christ-likeness. And so, I don't know about you, this can be discouraging, right? You can look at a, a person like this and think, man, they got something I don't, right? He, had just, he was next level. But when you read some of his journal entries that have uh, since by one of his best friends been turned into uh, his biography, when you read his journal entries, it says otherwise. He, uh, his walk was a slog. He uh, struggled with old habits, sin, backsliding. Now, I do think the, the perception, the optics of his life being an incredibly holy man is accurate. He, he really lived up, but that doesn't mean it came easy for him. He worked hard uh, to live a life of holiness, to flee from sin. And so by God's help, uh, he was able to do that, and by God's help, we can do the same. Rosaria Butterfield has this great quote, which I have written on a post-it note and stuck on my desk. Uh, says this, we become proficient in what we practiced, both obedience and sin. We become proficient in what we practice, both obedience and sin. And so when we think and we look at lives like Stephen, we look at lives like Robert Murray McShane, they really took this to heart, to live a, a life of holiness. But again, there's so much more going on than works righteousness, what we, what we bring to the table. So I said, this can be discouraging, uh, when we look at super godly people, I, <laughs> I don't know about you, I don't see myself fitting in in this list in Acts chapter 6. I don't see Luke writing, uh, and what they said pleased the whole congregation, or the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith. Aaron, uh, who couldn't get his act together. Philip, and Procurus. He, I don't see myself landing in that list, right? So it can be discouraging. But again, There's no way to read Luke's account of Stephen or look at a life like a man like Robert Murray McShane and see them thriving because of man's power. So again, I want to reiterate, when we talk about personal holiness, we're not talking about works righteousness, but this is the pursuit of a godly life by God's help and a pursuit of God's mission. And so, to start our passage today, chapter 6, verse 8. Luke goes on to talk about Stephen. He says this, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. So, so far what we know about Stephen is his life, words, and actions proclaim Christ. Now we can see, though, his life, words, and actions proclaiming Christ deserves some hazard pay, right? Jesus was just executed as an enemy of the state not long before this, and now he's looking a lot like Jesus and proclaiming Jesus with his life. So he's walking into dangerous territory. Continuing in verse 11, Then they, those that were there, secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. And they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place 
and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. So false witnesses make claims about Stephen. We know they're false because Luke says they're false witnesses. They accuse Stephen of going against the temple and the law. They're rallying against him. They're bullying him. Right? Maybe you can think of a time in your life where you've had people rally and bully you and make, set up rumors about you. Right? That's a hopeless feeling. And this has got to be a hopeless feeling for Stephen. Right? Especially when these rumors that they're throwing out there are blasphemy. Right? Which is not, you're not just getting a slap on the wrist. Right? He's facing potential death. So he's being bullied. They're rallying against him. What a hopeless feeling. But we can be encouraged. God doesn't leave uh, his people hanging when the enemy attacks. It said the Holy Spirit enables Stephen to speak with wisdom. Now some of this wisdom that Stephen was speaking, some of this truth, uh, was what was so abrasive to these hard-hearted people. But God provides uh, wisdom. The Holy Spirit works in our lives when this confrontation comes. Jesus said, uh, back in Luke chapter 21, uh, verses 12 through 19, Jesus was talking to his followers, and he says this, But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how you will answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance you will gain your lives." And so Stephen is living proof uh, in this moment that Jesus' promise is true, that he will give uh, you wisdom. Now, this doesn't mean uh, don't read your Bible, don't prepare. Uh, Stephen exercises and demonstrates some serious Bible knowledge in the next 50 or so verses that we're going to go through. But uh, what a promise, what a hope we have that in that hopeless feeling, in that uh, absolutely being piled on, and this rallying against that, that God promises wisdom. And so back in Acts, we run into an interesting verse, verse 15. It says, And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. It's an interesting, interesting thing. Right, what, do we, what do we do with that? Now maybe, uh, if you've spent a lot of time in your Bible, maybe you think of, this reminds you of a time when Moses the one who they're accusing Stephen of being against here, when Moses had spent time with God uh, and came down from the mountain and his face was shining so brightly that he had to cover it with a veil. This is an interesting parallel. Stephen is accused of rejecting Moses, yet God shows his approval of both Moses' ministry of the law and Stephen. John Stott says this quote, another godly man characterized by personal holiness says this, God's blessing on Stephen is evident throughout the grace and power in his ministry, verse 8, his irresistible wisdom, verse 10, 
and his shining face, verse 15, were all tokens that the favor of God rested upon him. And so Stephen is uh, walking into this situation. He's accused of uh, rejecting or being against the temple and the law. And nothing is more important than the temple and the law to these accusers. And so the high priest says in chapter 7, verse 1, Are these things so? Now Stephen takes the next 52 verses to make his defense. He shows that it's not just his life that proclaims Christ, but also his message. Not just his life, but also his message. And so that's our second point. Stephen's message proclaims Christ. So as I said, buckle up. We're going to read the whole thing. And so uh, uh, follow along if you can. It'll be on the screen. Uh, If you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you uh, to follow along. But I want to make sure that we don't miss the forest for the trees in this, because I know I've read this before, and I think the conclusion I came to was, man, Stephen takes a long time to get to the point. You know, he, he tells the whole history of the Old Testament, and then finally lands the plane at the very end. Uh, that's a, <laughs> a shallow way of reading this passage. So let's consider what Stephen's point is throughout this. He was accused of going against the temple and the law. And it's interesting to see the whole time we go through this, Stephen isn't against these things. He actually flips the script and says that they are his accusers. He tells the story of Abraham, Moses, uh, Joseph, David, Solomon, the prophets. And he goes through this whole thing and he, he really emphasizes that God isn't restricted to a physical space. He talks a lot about God's faithfulness uh, to these people, to his people. Uh, And he even does certain things, even just with geography. Uh, When he's talking about Joseph, he mentions Egypt in a... He wants to make a special emphasis uh, that God is with his people when there certainly isn't a temple in Egypt. And so he doesn't bash the temple, but he rejects that the temple should be made an idol, making it something that it was never intended to be. And then we also see another really clear thread through this whole thing of man's continual rejection of God and his people. Uh, they re- when he goes through Abraham, Joseph, Moses, the prophets, and we'll see eventually, again, when Stephen lands the plane, even Jesus, he talks about how throughout history, man has rejected these people who, who God has sent. And so, uh, let's read Acts chapter 7, verses 2 through 53. I'm going to take a drink of water first, though. And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. And after that, they shall come out 
and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his affliction and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine through all of Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. But as the time of promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt, until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight, and he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came to his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became a father of two sons. Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them, and now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both a ruler and a redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him but thrust him aside and in their hearts they turned to Egypt. 
saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god Rephan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all of these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. And so Stephen's whole message here culminates in Christ. By the way, especially the kids, great job for sticking through that. That was really good. Stephen's message culminates with Christ. God's plan throughout history points to Jesus. Right? We see God dwelling with his people, being faithful, taking care of his people. And then again, that culmination is Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. And so Stephen says, like your fathers who rejected, uh, who God had sent, you killed the righteous one. You idolize a building and you reject God with us. Jesus said uh, to the religious leaders back in uh, John chapter 5, he said this, John chapter 5, uh, verses 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. He goes on in verse 46. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. And so Stephen is still beating the same horse, this beating the same drum that uh, Jesus was beating at the time when he's talking to the religious leaders. And so Stephen flips the script. He becomes the prosecutor, not the defendant. He says, someone is rejecting God's law, God's temple, the righteous one, but it's not me. And understandably, they were livid. They were furious with Stephen's life proclaiming Christ, Stephen's message proclaiming Christ. But little did they know that Stephen's death would also proclaim Christ. 
continuing in verse 54. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out in a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. So Stephen knew what was going on. You know, he didn't, he didn't walk into this blindly. He knew what proclaiming Christ in his life and his message would mean. But he had a heavenly perspective, like Jesus, uh, when he faced his own death. He said, Father, like we sang, Father, not my will, but yours be done. Stephen and Jesus, they both died horrible deaths, and they're very different But we see some similarities. We see false accusations. We see a crowd enraged. We see Jesus commit his spirit to God. We see Stephen commit his spirit to Jesus. And then we see uh, them both pray for the forgiveness of those that are murdering them. And then we see them die legitimately horrific deaths. Then it says Stephen fell asleep. How, how do we look at a death, like stoning, a horrible death, and say, oh, he fell asleep? Well, for a Christian, falling asleep is the perfect metaphor for death. As Stephen closed his eyes to this world, he opened his eyes in glory. Jesus promised suffering. He promised struggles. But he almost... he also promised resurrection. And so what a hope that we have that death isn't the end. And so because of that, it's not a tragedy. It's a horrible thing that happened to Stephen. This is Injustice 101. But it's not a tragedy because we are left with this hope of resurrection as well as a few encouragements from some verses that I'll read that honestly don't sound that encouraging, but we can be encouraged. Acts 8, starting at verse 1. And Saul approved of his execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentations over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So I want to bring out a few encouragements. I know that doesn't sound like an encouraging portion, but a few encouragements. The first being this. God is moving the mission forward. God is moving the mission forward. Stephen's death advances the mission. This is a big turning point. They used to be able to gather, right? We saw them, all the Christians, thousands of them, gathering in Solomon's portico, the temple. They can't gather, right? They're dispersed. But is this a setback? 
we can see with hindsight, uh, as we look back on this passage, that it's this dispersion, it's this persecution that forces the gospel to go global. And that's good. In Acts chapter 1, we saw the blueprint of the book of Acts and kind of the mission statement for the church. Jesus says this to his followers, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses, where? In Jerusalem, okay, they're doing that, in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And what do we get here? A report of them dispersed to Judea and Samaria. And over the next number of weeks, we're going to track through the book of Acts and see how this dispersion furthers the mission of the gospel. And so we can be encouraged that even when we see things that are beyond our understanding or things that we uh, legitimately see as terrible things, God is moving the mission forward. Our second encouragement that we see is that God can save anyone. And this is the same encouragement we saw last week. We saw many priests coming to faith, right? Again, we talked about not exactly the most fertile ground, right? But these priests were coming to faith. And now we're introduced to a man named Saul. Saul was ravaging the church. He approved of this murder. Saul is a terrorist and an enemy of the gospel. But he's also the answer to Stephen's prayer. Stephen says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. For those that have uh, read any portion of the New Testament, you may know that Saul has soon, that we'll see in the book of Acts, an encounter with Jesus. He's renamed to Paul, the Apostle Paul. And he becomes the main human character of even this book, uh, the book of Acts in the second half. We'll see so much of him. He went from an enemy of the gospel and became an ambassador of the gospel. And Paul never forgets uh, Stephen's life, message, and death. Chapter 22, verse 20 Paul says this, Saul, Paul. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. So Saul was taking this all in in this moment. And this is so encouraging that no one is beyond God's reach. If you know someone that you think, man, there's just no way. Man, they're not Saul. Nobody is beyond God's reach. Praise the Lord that God is the one who does the saving, not us. And you may be sitting there thinking that that's you, that you're beyond God's reach. I promise you, you're not. There's nothing you've done that God cannot forgive you for. You are loved. And so Stephen's life, message, and death proclaim Christ. We see parallels with Jesus' life. Right, we see this word and deed ministry. Right, we see how Stephen, most of what we know about him, is he's pointing to Jesus through the Bible. Right, and we see a horrific death. But they both stared death in the face, and they said, Father, not my will, but yours be done. The mission advances after Stephen's death, and even because of Stephen's death. And we can look at Jesus and see what his death accomplished, defeating sin and evil. That certainly moves the mission forward. And so what does it mean to follow Jesus, to truly follow Jesus? 
Well, like Stephen, the answer is simple. We simply need to follow him. We need to follow Jesus. So if you want to know more about what that actually means and looks like, uh, read your Bible. Start with the Gospels. If you don't have a Bible, I will get you a Bible. Come talk to me. If you want someone to read through the Bible with you, come talk to me. We'll find somebody. If you've read the Bible before, read it again. Look at the life, uh, the work, the ministry of Jesus and emulate that. So Robert Murray McShane, we've talked about a few times. Uh, again, a man that is absolutely characterized by personal holiness, but struggled all the same. He wrote this as one of his diary entries after reading about a well-known pastor and author that he looked up to. He said this, Read part of the life of Jonathan Edwards. How feeble does my spark of Christianity appear beside such a son? S-U-N. But even his was a borrowed light, and the same source is still open to enlighten me. And so we can go home today, and you can write in your own diary or your own journal, and say, read part of the life of Stephen in Acts. How feeble does my spark of Christianity appear beside such a sun? But even his was a borrowed light, and the same source is still open to enlighten me. Let's pray. Father, we come to you as humble sinners, knowing our inadequacy, but knowing of your goodness. And Father, we desire to live lives that proclaim Christ. So give us the strength to do that, Father. Give us the ability uh, to walk into the challenges of life, the storms of life, and say, Father, not my will, but yours be done. Uh, thank you for the example I've seen in godly men uh, and women through uh, the Bible and through history that have given us uh, an idea of, of what it means to truly follow you. Father, I pray that for those here that don't know you, that you would stir in their hearts and work in their hearts and, and give them an idea of what it means to really hand their life over and follow you. And for those that do know you, I pray that we would all be enabled by your spirit, by your help, to live godly lives, to live lives characterized by holiness uh, as we know that same source that we see modeled is open to enlighten us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.